Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, although I planned on getting this podcast out yesterday, I kind of got waylaid by listening to reports about the big storm that's underway in the northeast of the U.S. right now. I've uh, actually got a lot of friends in the area, not to mention all of our fellow saloners who are going to have to shovel a lot of snow this year. Is it just me, or are some parts of this planet slowly morphing into areas that are now unfit for human habitation? Granted, uh, snow can be fun under the right circumstances, but dealing with a lot of snow and ice and cold weather each year most definitely takes something out of you. My mother and stepfather relocated from northern Illinois when they were in their early 70s and moved to Florida, where they enjoyed almost another 20 years. But during that time, every one of their friends that they had left behind up north died long before they did. Obviously, there were a lot of other factors involved in their longevity, but I'm convinced that getting out of the winter weather was the primary thing that helped them live so long. Now, for today's talk, we're going to again go back to the 2014 Palenque Norte lectures that were held at Burning Man. And today's speaker is Rack Razam, whose work I've mentioned here in the salon before. As you may remember, Rack is the man who created the book and the video that are titled Aya Awakenings that uh, deal with his exploration of the shamanic medicine, ayahuasca. Now, in the Burning Man program, Rack's talk was titled Cosmic Consciousness to Convergence, Activating the Species. But during his talk, he says that the title is Psychedelics, Entheogens, and the Species Activation. But as you can see, I decided to call this talk Consciousness Browsers which is the wonderful phrase that I heard for the first time when Rack used it in the talk that we're about to listen to. Now, over the years, there have been a lot of suggestions for what to call our psychedelic medicines. Jonathan Ott and his team came up with the word entheogen, which is a fine word and one that I often use in conjunction with our sacred medicines. However, when it comes to a description of the psychedelic experience, well, I don't see how we can improve on Rack's concept of consciousness browsers. Maybe he didn't come up with it himself, but after trying several search engines to locate another instance of it, I came up empty-handed. So, unless Rack tells me otherwise, I'm giving him the credit for what I think is a fantastic way to describe psychedelic medicines. Consciousness browsers. Perfect. And as you'll notice in a moment... The first minute or so of Rack's talk didn't get recorded. But having been in charge of recording some of the Palenque Norte talks in past years myself, when I didn't even get some of them recorded at all, (laughs) well, let's be thankful that only a few sentences were lost. And now, in mid-sentence, here is Rack Razam delivering his 2014 Palenque Norte lecture at Burning Man. And at that time, I hadn't really done ayahuasca or any of the other... I've done psilocybin mushrooms and a few other different plant entheogens but predominantly I was coming from a psychedelic background and I think that's where many of us have come from but in the years since the entheogenic movement has really sprouted very dynamically and uh, in a very beautiful way and uh, my second assignment after Albert Hoffman in January 2006 was to go down to uh, the, the, uh, the Amazon in South America in Peru 
and to really discover what this mythic archetype of the shaman was all about and why that role had really been extinguished from the Western mainframe, why it was really gururized and revered a lot in the West because we don't have shamans, we don't have medicine people because for the last 500 years or so of our recorded history, we have eradicated every culture we've come into contact with that had um, a deep relationship with the planet that involved entheogenic or mind-altering plants and the medicine people that was associated with that. We, we've had the, the eradication in the West uh, of all the, the witches and the medicine women. You know, there's been a, a, a real... Um, Genocide on multiple levels, both with indigenous cultures and with uh, people within the West who evinced any connection to spirit itself. And so, my, you know, my assignment going down to Peru was totally self, uh, self-set by myself uh, to write about and to encounter what this, this whole rise in, in shamanism was about and what ayahuasca was about and to, um, to discover why so many Westerners were going down to the jungles of South America to partake of this vegetal medicine. Uh, I was there for nine weeks and that became a book which is out now called Ira Awakenings. And here at Palenque Norte uh, at midnight, they're screening the film adaption of that book which has uh, just come out uh, at the start of this year, 2014, also called Ira Awakenings. Uh, so that's a little bit about my background. Basically, I went very deep down the rabbit hole and uh, there's this whole idea of the heroic journey and... Um, it's not in, again, in the Western sense, they've made, just like they've made spirituality, they've made this whole heroic journey um, almost something to be um, reserved or not to be proud of. But it's not about going out and um, the heroic thing really is doing what needs to be done or discovering something of value and bringing it back and sharing it with the tribe. And that's the full circle. That's coming full circle. So for me, that heroic journey took seven years to fully integrate my, my first blush of ayahuasca experiences and to make media of them in the two books, Ayah Awakenings and the Ayahuasca Sessions, uh, and now the film. And so it's very interesting because after seven years of having made media about altered states and ayahuasca and the entheogenic explosion, I'm now going back full circle to Peru in September and uh, leading some of my first retreats with Percy Garcia, Kieran Darrow down there that I respect, and getting back into the medicine. So usually at uh, festivals like Palenque here and uh, all over the world in Australia and in North America, I usually talk about ayahuasca because that's, you know, um, something I've got a lot of experience with. But I also come from this psychedelic background. And so I really like to explore how modalities like ayahuasca interact and interface with movements that have come before and with basically consciousness browsers like psychedelics and like the entheogens and, you know, there's other pathways as well and how this all fits into a bigger picture. Um, so this talk I'm doing here tonight uh, at Palenque is called From Cosmic Consciousness to Convergence, Psychedelics, Entheogens and the Species Activation. Uh, so, you know, to, to research this and to go back to some of the basic fundamental building blocks, many people, when we're talking about psychedelics or ayahuasca, they'll tell you their experiences, uh, but it's very hard to come back to these base concepts and discuss them with a sort of scientific rigor or a shared understanding that makes it palatable. So I really wanted to look at what is consciousness, right? I mean, you know, if you've ever had any deep uh, consciousness experiences, you know, you can get to these singularity points where consciousness is everything. Consciousness is all there is, but it's, it's shaping and it's mapping and it's clothing itself in all these myriad of forms that make up reality that seem to be separate, 
You know, they seem to be these discrete particles in what we are also told is a wave formation. It's this collective canvas that consciousness expresses itself on. So I was really interested in looking at how previous waves of consciousness and different generations have expressed the idea of what what is it and what's what's going on with it. And, you know, I first came across this philosopher, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, through Terence McKenna. You know, Terence would throw off these wonderful terms like concrescence, and I'd have to go off and look, look it up, you know, this, this like manifestation of things, the way things seem to um, pull together and to, to almost like a... Uh, uh, a sand pitcher that's turned upside down and all the layers find themselves and they sort of, they, they actualize, they become from this void of unbecoming. You know, there's still, there's still central mystery, which to this day, even the, the quantum scientists will have language for it, but they do not know. You know, they cannot verifiably say what it is. And it's very strange because our entire civilization and our technology and the way we, you know, uh, import and carry ourselves and, how we navigate through the world is all dependent upon consciousness. So I, I first came across this philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, who once defined consciousness as the awareness of awareness or the apperception uh, of pattern as such. And I think they say this in, uh, in, in other frames of reference as well. It's like, it's like the pattern within the noise. You know, there's a lot of information. Well, there's a lot of noise out there, but it's how you grok or how you lock into seeing which bits of it are valid or which bits of it make sense, which bits are reflected in a way which congeal together to make up a meaningful reaction and are then transmitting to you some type of pattern. Because if there's a pattern, there is a consciousness behind it. I mean, the pattern is consciousness, as I think we, we might be about to find out. So as well as uh, this, this, this definition of consciousness from uh, Alfred North Whitehead, you know, every culture has their own definitions. You go back through uh, this idea of the mind-brain dynamic all the way through the classic civilizations with Rome and Greece. Um, uh, in the, in the, the march of civilization as we know it, what Terence also used to call his story, you know, and there's hyphen in there. It's the story that patriarchal culture has told of the conquest and the wars and who conquered who and our distancing from nature. Uh, but by around the turn of the 19th century, I mean... You know, there's these resonance, there are waves to history. I mean, it's a, I won't go into Terence's idea of the time wave, but there are some very resonant ideas that time is either cyclic or there's uh, waves of certain type of um, uh, energies that are coming through that manifest slightly differently, um, but there's different patterns coming through. So in the 19th century, there was this revival of spiritualism as well. And in a really strange way, it, it very uh, dynamically um, mirrors the mid-20th century psychedelic explosion. So at this time, uh, as evolution in medicine and uh, disciplines like psychology were actually just actualizing themselves and starting to come into existence, there were philosophers like the Henry Bergson, who was a French philosopher, and he was really looking at ideas uh, around consciousness. But, you know, consciousness has quite often been defined through the lens of the intellect and through this, these general parameters which are only facets of overall consciousness. Henry Bergson was really, um, he had the famous phrase saying, the universe is a machine for making gods. You know, and that was 19th century terminology. And machine, now we would probably update with a lot more organic, you know, uh, cloud computing type of distributed consciousness metaphors. But he was, he was basically saying there is a process or intellect at work in the universe which creates consciousness. And we can't 
grasp the whole tale of the beast or the whole beast um, by just using the intellect. And he was really big on this idea of intuition and of using the intuition and of um, exploring the imagination. And originally, you know, in, in times past, imagination used to mean more than it means now. It's not just daydreaming or thinking things up. It's using your creative faculties, your entire life energy, your chi and your mind-body-heart connection to dream in or to ride in uh, you know, the mimetic sort of sculpting of the intellect into physical form. But you imagine, you know, it, it's more than just... So the, the, the mind has these different compartmentalizations and much more capability than uh, science itself has really explored. So that was, uh, that was uh, Henry Bergson. Another famous psychologist of the, uh, the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century was William James. He was a uh, Canadian Medical Association doctor who came to America as well, and he formed, uh, I think he formed the um, American Medical Association. He was very, you know, uh, respected. He was an early pioneer of nitrous oxide and of using uh, alterants to explore consciousness. Um, and, you know, nitrous is a, is a very interesting one that, again, is, is often overlooked. Um, but there were, there were many people, and back then, who were still within the medical profession, we hadn't had the split between medical, scientific, you know, rational minds exploring consciousness with mind alterants and what had to be, become buried and underground with the psychedelic movement once things became criminalized, you know, later on in time, which we'll, we'll get to. Um, so, you know, things like nitrous oxide, uh, mescaline, opium, peyote were very prevalent in the, in the medical inst- uh, underground of the, the turn of the century into the 19th, 20th century. Um, and it, yeah, it, it interestingly does seem to parallel what was happening a generation or three later with the psychedelic revolution. So, in 1898, William James uh, gave a very famous lecture at Harvard University, uh, this, this, uh, this very choice phrase where he said... Um, like Henry Bergson before him, he refused to, to believe that the fangs of cerebralism alone could explain the function of the brain and consciousness. As far as our understanding goes, he said, that would be as great a miracle if we, if we said thought is spontaneously generated or created out of nothing. He went on to say that our waking consciousness and rational consciousness about you know, two types of consciousness, while all about it, uh, there are different... There are different Variations of consciousness separated by only the flimsiest of screens. That was from his famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he published in 1902. Um, so another contemporary of these gentlemen uh, in, in the early 20th century was Richard Morris Buck, who wrote this book, uh, Cosmic Consciousness, A Study in the Evolution of the Human Mind. And this is where a bit of the title comes from. So uh, he said that in his book that cosmic consciousness is a mystical state above and beyond self-consciousness, which is man's natural state, which in itself is above pure sentient animal consciousness, and so on. So the, he introduced the idea that there was a stepping stone of consciousness itself through rudimentary sort of sapience into this sentience, into these you know, aggregating levels uh, where it gets finessed finer and finer and finer. And so the levels of awareness we normally think of as consciousness when we're awake... Um, as I'll get to a bit later, are only one frequency of consciousness. And as we know, you know, just in the normal, you know, we go through, we cycle through, whether that's normal day um, consciousness or being asleep and going to that, that level of dream consciousness or the imagination or focusing uh, and then problem solving. There's many different uh, switches on the dial that we can, we can turn on. So William Morris Buck wrote this book, Cosmic Consciousness, and what he wanted to look at 
was these perceptions of what he called cosmic consciousness, and he mapped the historical record, and you've got to remember this is his story, so it's, it's a flawed experiment to begin with, but he was looking at basically the saints, the mystics, the seers, the sadhus, you know, different cultures which exhibited tendencies to have a consciousness beyond the normal Western groove. And he wrote this book that uh, mapped, um, you know, different characteristics and similarities between all these sages and seers and mystics, whether that's Mohammed or Jesus or William Blake or people like that, which have left historical records, you know, it, it sometimes become calcified and become dogma in Bibles and uh, other religious texts, which, funnily enough, most of the original uh, religious founders in their writings would say, do not form a church, do not write this down, you know, the kingdom lies within. Practice these techniques, don't write it down. That's another form of consciousness which is, is going to lead you down the, the wrong path. Anyway, um, we, William Morris Buck compared all these, all these mystics, and there was men and there was women um, who exhibited similar characteristics, and from that he sort of extracted this idea that there was a certain percentage of the gene pool, or you could maybe say the meme pool, maybe the spirit pool, you know, there's a certain percentage of people throughout history who have always exhibited this ability to have elevated states of consciousness beyond the norm, some of them to the degree which would attain this apparent oneness with source consciousness, with this feeling of um, holistic type of integration with all of existence. And if you've ever had, you know, we, uh, Sasha Shulgin, God bless him, many thanks for all his gifts, uh, also invented, you know, the Shulgin scale. And he has this idea of, you know, plus one, plus two, plus three, plus four, and ideas of consciousness. So, you know, many different psychedelic commentators did as well. Timothy Leary had the eight stages of, uh, of neurosomatic consciousness where he would list, uh, you know, different states. You may, you may get to marijuana may bring on a, a body somatic sort of consciousness at, at this level. You know, LSD may bring on a neuroelectric consciousness at the next level. You might get to neuroatomic consciousness. So the idea of cosmic consciousness, every culture has their language for it. And if you look through some of these religious uh, uh, books that have been written down, like the Rig Veda and things like that, they will describe their sacraments like the somas of antiquity, which they use to achieve elevated states of consciousness. Um, so this is, has been a pattern throughout uh, recorded history. Um, so one thing, again, William, William Morris Buck said, uh, instead of just using intellect as an integer for, for cosmic consciousness, he envisaged a type of consciousness that was itself conscious of life and order in the universe with this interconnected perspective, which is more intuitive knowing than just factual understanding. Um, so, you know, we can recognize that both in ourselves, in animals. In the shamanic paradigm, uh, they believe that plants are sentient and have consciousness. And this is what I'll get to a bit later in this idea that the species themselves, all species, are alive and have some type of consciousness, some rudimentary type of consciousness. And I believe that each of the species are sharing... Um, they have different frequencies, but overall those frequencies collect into a gestalt of frequency which would add up to... Uh, something that's getting closer to a Gaian mind, which is not the full cosmic consciousness, but it's basically the planetary mind. And, you know, it, it scales up from there. So let me not get too far ahead of myself. Um, so the idea of... Uh, okay, Wikipedia defines cosmic consciousness as the concept that the universe exists as an interconnected network of consciousness with each conscious being linked to every other. Sometimes this is conceived as, of as forming a collective consciousness which spans the cosmos. Other times it is conceived of as an absolute 
or Godhead from which all conscious beings emanate. Now, again, in many different religious traditions and in many spiritual and um, philosophical traditions, they have this idea. In uh, Indian sort of mysticism, there's this idea of Indra's net and of each like nodal point being a jewel in this whole net of the life you know, force itself. Um, there's the idea of Tilhar de Chardin who had the new sphere, which is sort of uh, this concrescence again or this amalgamation of everything of human endeavor, of intellect and of uh, everything we're creating is coalescing in this information sphere around us, which is getting very close to what the internet is becoming. Uh, in the 1970s, James Lovelock, who was uh, an ex-NASA um, physicist, uh, had the idea of Gaia, and he, he, the Gaia hypothesis, he, he termed it that the whole Earth is a living organism, and uh, you know, uh, intelligence and life itself cascades through all the species and makes up an organic, holistic whole. So you know, nowadays that that whole theory is sort of rebranded a bit as whole systems theory, which allows uh, science to explore it without any dogma. So. What uh, many mystics and seers uh, have uh, talked about is this idea of connecting to larger states of consciousness itself. And when you do get to these higher vibrational frequencies of consciousness, it starts to sort of smear out into uh, back to back to source. Back to you get to a certain plateau within which um, you're leaving the more terrestrial realms and you're going into. Uh, deep core consciousness itself in some of the Sufi traditions they call that the Godhead uh, many people who have had near death experiences um, say they go into this white light sort of tunnel experience you know other people might call it the void um, in uh, I'll get to it a bit later in the talk but you know in quantum terminology they uh, they call this um, the implicate this idea that there's this, this realm which everything comes from so William Morris Buck mapped this across the historical record and interestingly enough he thought that it seemed to be on the increase there seemed to be some type of momentum to um, the manifestation in in history and in culture itself of people who would say they were having transcendent experiences and also deep sort of cosmic connection to source experiences and so you know that could be an anomaly in his historical record keeping and in the fact that the the sample he did was the ones that have survived into history. Um, but it does seem interesting that as we enter the 20th century, uh, we do seem to see this, uh, this level of consciousness and of experimentation with psychedelics and entheogens manifest in the millions, you know, and, and, and statistically within that uh, millions, there is definitely, I would say, tens of thousands of people uh, who have had deep core, you know, uh, Godhead experience. Um, one thing that, that Buck also overlooked because he was studying as a Victorian era sort of scholar, he was studying Western cultures, is he overlooked the shamanic cultures. He overlooked all the indigenous cultures, which are the gatekeepers um, of their traditions and of their relationship with the planet. Um, in, in the Peruvian traditions that I've experienced and learnt from, they have a term Pachamama, which means, you know, it's a term for the earth herself as a living organism. Uh, and they treat the earth as a living organism. They understand that, you know, you can connect with it through the entheogens or through power plants like ayahuasca or San Pedro cactus. Um, but these tribes have also kept that flame alive, not just of the plants, but of the relationship to the planet as an organism. And so that has sort of been overlooked in the Western understanding of cosmic consciousness over time. Um, so uh, the cosmic consciousness is on the rise. Um, 
Traditionally, in uh, indigenous cultures, plant gnosis was often sanctioned through, uh, you know, in the mediation of a village shaman. Um, many cultures had this healing medicine person who would work on behalf of people and work with the plants. Traditionally, in some cultures, the shaman would take things like ayahuasca to effect healing for the patient, and the patient wouldn't take the medicine. So in some instances, people in indigenous cultures didn't experience uh, altered reality with sacraments like ayahuasca. Although, to be fair, you know, in their culture, they had the blinkers off. They were living in the jungle in direct, unmediated connection with um, the planet, with the, the living life force and the energy and the chi of the planet all around. And again, under that umbrella of the... Um, the idea of Pachamama as a, as a living organism, of uh, you know the earth as the mother who uh, births and sustains through her abundance. And so that in itself is an altered state, especially compared to the diluted and denuded consciousness that Western uh, understanding has, has been reduced down to. Um, so this idea that the consciousness is on some type of momentum, uh, in the West at least, you know, in, in whole systems theory, which is that idea of Gaia hypothesis, there's many different ideas that, you know, you, you can't suppress something. You know, in, in every ism you'll find this idea that second law of thermodynamics is, you know, everything has an equal and opposite effect. So in psychology, if you repress a fear or a phobia or something, it'll manifest somewhere else. It won't just go away. It'll come back to bite you later. Um, it's similar with consciousness, right? So his story... I mean, for the last, you know, 500 years, uh, definitely, you know, back to the start of um, the industrialization, uh, when we've really, we've really raped, pillaged and plundered the planet and used it as a resource to build this mechanization, which is a direct di diametric opposite to this vegetal uh, Pachamama relationship with the organic um, feminine of the planet. There was this sort of yang opposite to the, to the feminine planetary matrix and the, the, the abundance that is there, where Western consciousness has taken, and it could only take what it thought it needed in the West if it could not see the planet as a living organism. So we've had this slow drift over history of um, trickling down to like, you know, horses with blinkers on to not see the planet as a, as a living, you know, um, loving organism. Uh, and that energy built not just the, the industrialization and the mechanization of our culture and you know the intellect that we've seen that has created planetary culture as we have it now, which is still relentlessly in, you know, um, spreading like a virus across the planet and is now at a tipping point of uh, bio-killing. You know? it's like it, it's, it, we're about to kill the, uh, the embedded uh, womb-verse that we're in. Uh, and so... At the same time as this, this equal and opposite reaction happens and this slow drift from the, the turn of the 19th century and the 20th century and the early experiments with things like mescaline and POT and, and nitrous oxide, um, they started uh, building in Western culture through the, the medical establishment, the psychoanalysis, but there was this build-up of pressure. And so to come back to psychedelic culture again, 1943, Albert Hoffman says he has his famous bike ride. He goes back to... These, uh, the 25th compound of uh, lysergic acid that he experimented upon. And he has this strange presentiment, which was the English translation of, in German, it's something like Vorgenhol. And it means something a lot deeper. 
in in Basel in uh, in in 2006 when I was at the uh, the 100th birthday symposium for Albert Hoffman. He told us all. He told us all his secret origin. He said, you know, he was born in, in, in Basel, Switzerland, which itself was this uh, originally a medieval town which was involved with alchemy. And over the next 500 years, it evolved to be involved in chemistry. And, you know, Sando laboratories are there and all these big laboratories. But they remember their connection to alchemy and to what alchemy really was, to this idea of, you know, changing not just lead to gold, but to changing the base uh, soul into a higher vibrational frequency. Like the the medieval alchemists like John Dee and a lot of other people weren't just interested in like what has now become chemistry. They were interested in the soul and in consciousness itself and elevating that and purifying that soul. So, um, you know, LSD exploded upon the world uh, very quickly from 1943 onwards. And I, I suspect it's because it was bottled up. This, this need for, you know, consciousness to express itself was flattened for 500 years in, uh, in the West as we built up this charge of history to mechanize and to industrialize and to build. Um, but it, it built up this, this, uh, this need to connect, to connect back to the feminine, back to the mother, back to the abundance of nature herself. And so it, it can't be eradicated. It's in every culture. You know, George Orwell has this bit in 1984 where he's like, the, the forces of control, the forces of this prime intellectual masculine yang that wants this pure, you know, force that wants to control the whole world, wants to eradicate the orgasm, you know, which is the primal energetic. It's not just yin, but it's this primal life force that you can't eradicate. But the forces of control, it's the yin yang, it's the Tao all over again. They're in an internal dance. So by the 1940s, 1950s, um, psychedelics explode onto the scene you know they trickle out of the medical establishment um it's been very well documented i'm not sure if you are aware of this but mk ultra the cia were one of the the main people behind the psychedelic explosion all the way back to world war ii with oss the precursors to the cia they had um from the 1950s onwards they had a program called mk ultra which was basically funding a lot of the psycho uh um, analysis, analysis people, a lot of the medical establishment to work with LSD um, and to get it out into the community. And then as it started to really uh, escape to even larger degrees, they were completely flooding the Haight-Ashbury and completely um, controlling a, a large supply of LSD for some grand social experiment to this day we do not know why. Uh, a lot of the uh, psychedelic uh, mythology and commentators like to think that LSD is like detourned the anti-war movement and it kept people in a more um, spaced out sort of head, headspace. But I, I suspect there is a central intelligence that goes way beyond the CIA and I suspect that there were some, some very good people. Because the inter interesting thing was there was a mind war from the 19, late 1940s all through the 50s and 60s where everyone was doing LSD. The establishment, the medical establishment, the artists, the bohemia, the corporations were using LSD while it was still legal as a creativity tool. Um, people were having amazing reactions from it and they discovered that it was an amplifier and the CIA would use it as a brainwashing tool and have an amazing result and go, my God, this is it. This is the truth serum we've been looking for. And then the next day, it wouldn't work as a truth serum and the person taking it would just, you know, love the CIA to death. And it was like, it, would be, it very quickly became apparent that it was an amplifier for whatever you had within you. It wasn't just one thing for one people. Um, but it, it was this amplifier. So 
one of the people that was turned on during this wave of the 50s was uh, a very famous writer called Algis Huxley. And he was a part of the intelligentsia, and he developed a plan for LSD to turn on the intelligentsia, to make it trickle down, turn on the politicians, the corporate leaders, you know, the religious leaders, and to have it trickle down through safe pathways to be embraced by the culture in a way which wasn't going to cause a blowback and an equal and opposite reaction. And so um, Algis had, had this idea that what was happening with the LSD experience wasn't actually uh, basically the LSD itself. It was LSD was basically neurochemically working on the brain to reveal what he called the minds at large. And interestingly enough, this has actually been proven in the last few years with experiments with uh, MRI scans on what the what uh, psychedelics and entheogens are doing, which I'll, I'll get to a bit later. Um, but his theory was according to this. Uh, the mind at large and, and, and Huxley was also involved coining the term psychedelic uh, in letters with Dr. Humphrey Osman psychedelic means to manifest the mind uh, they went through a lot of different variations but uh, that, that's the one they came down to um, according to Huxley's theory uh, of mind at large he said that each one of us is potentially mind at large but to make biological survival possible, that had to be funneled down through the reducing valve of the brain and the nervous system. So what came out at the other end was a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which helps us stay alive on the surface of the planet. And so it's this idea that, you know, to survive down here on the gravity well, we've reduced that cosmic consciousness, which really is debilitating in a sense because you can't go out and function. You can't pee. You can't go off and do bodily functions when you've merged with the universe at large. You know, unless you can orchestrate some type of self-fulfilling, autonomous, reciprocal, higher consciousness maintenance of your system, so you could do that. Um, but you, 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 you need. We need basically. We need to have the level of. Or we have evolved the level of consciousness we've had for a reason. So everything there is, you know, in, in intellect and intelligence and an evolution behind why we're at this stage. And his story, history, is only ten thousand or so years old. And, you know, people like Graham Hancock and other archaeological scholars are finding evidence of civilizations to go back a lot further. But there's this idea in uh, different cultures of different world ages and shifts in consciousness. So in this stage of, of, uh, of where we're at, we've only had a certain frequency of consciousness, but it is, um, it is changing. So this idea that the brain, um, what happens on, uh, in altered states, whether that's through you know, meditation or tantra or psychedelics or plant entheogens, it's not necessarily the substance itself. I think I've read in the, in the, in the chemical literature that LSD is actually uh, synthesized and absorbed by your body in the first 19 minutes that it's taken, right, very quickly. And usually you, you don't actually start to feel the effects of LSD before the first half an hour or so, and it lasts for like, you know, eight hours. So how can this be? It is not the substance itself. It is what it is unlocking in your brain. Now, this is very interesting because there's been some very key scientific studies in the last five years or so that have proven this as well. The Beckley Foundation in the United Kingdom uh, did some studies with uh, MRI brain scans in 2012 when they were looking at patients who had taken, legally taken psilocybin mushrooms um, under these controlled conditions. And they looked at what it was doing to areas of their brain and they found that it actually switches off certain um, areas of the brain, not just one bit, but a few different uh, um, adjoining areas, which together are called the default mode network, right? The DMN. And this is so interesting because we're just discovering that this is not... And that basically confirms what Huxley thought about, about the mind at large and, and the filtering valve. 
Um, there's another um, researcher who is a Brazilian neuroscientist who presented at the MAPS conference in uh, 2013 called uh, Julio Barros de Arajo, and he all, similar, similarly found that uh, with MR, fMRI scans, he proved that the hallucinogenic brew ayahuasca um, was reducing the neural activity in the default mode network. So with our technology, which again, you know, let, let's let's um, let's embrace and for all the horrors of history, you know, this level of consciousness brought us the tools to look back within ourselves to now confirm that we don't need them. You know, that these substances and these things are opening up the potential of the brain as um, a mechanism to, I think, receive consciousness, not just transmit consciousness, to open up to larger levels of consciousness. Um, and so, you know, this this changes everything. And this is these are two independently confirmed studies in the last few years. And there's been others, you know, so they're, they're confirming it with different substances now that they are switching on and switching off different parts of the brain. And when they do that, what you're what what is left is what is having the transcendental experience from. Um, and depending on, I almost liken these substances, whether they're man-made psychedelics in a lab or entheogens, which comes from the Greek. Uh, it was rebranded in the 80s by Albert Hoffman and uh, a, um, a few other um, commentators to sort of get away from the stigma of psychedelics at that time in, in, uh, in the early 80s. Um, and it meant to invoke the divine within. Um, it's often, entheogen is often applied to the plant sacraments. But ultimately, you've got to remember, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the matrix of this planet, there is no... Every distinction is artificial when you say what is natural and what is not natural. I mean, we all know that you know stuff made in a lab, you may have a, a deeper relationship or find a, a resonance with the plant-based entheogens. Um, John Lilly, who was a, uh, a famous sort of psychedelic researcher in the 60s and 70s, said that he felt that uh, the man-made substances in the lab, he worked a lot with ketamine, he said they were like empty rooms. And so to use another... Um, uh, commentator, this idea of uh, morphic fields or this idea that they're all frequencies and so that the man-made chemicals um, develop relationships with us just like the plants but it's the plant-based entheogens that we have had relationships with for hundreds of thousands of years and there's neurophysiology to our brain which is structured that way to receive, you know, we've got these cannabinoid receptors of the brain to receive things like cannabis, we've got you know, the, 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 the DMT in our brain we have endogenous uh, tryptamines and um, chemicals that allow us to connect to these larger larger frames of mind. So um, all of these, I feel, are almost like browsers. If you have Internet Explorer open or Chrome or Opera, it'll be a slightly different way to surf the web, but you're still surfing this information, you know, event horizon of the Internet. And it's the same with these substances. Used with respect and used in the right way, the right set and setting, they're like browsers to take us to this infinite... Uh, playground of consciousness, um, but we have deeper relationships with, with some of them. So the really interesting thing about this idea of the default mode network being turned off is how this now interacts with what the brain is, because for many, many uh, years, science has actually said to us that the brain is a transmitter of consciousness. It, you, you were born, you have a brain, it's a, it's a mechanical box that does this thing, and it's called consciousness. And that's it. If you, if you die, so does the box, so does your brain, and so does your consciousness, and you're dead, and there's nothing more. Well, if the mind at large is true, which science is now getting, you know, pulling back that curtain and realizing it might be, 
what is consciousness? And so even back in some of these people I mentioned at the turn of the 19th into 20th centuries, they grok this as well. You know, all these people who realized it wasn't just about the intellect and this mechanistic way to approach consciousness. And they said, what if it's like the radio or the TV is, is the, the, the more modern analogy? It's your switching channels. And if you destroy the TV, the signal is still being broadcast and it can be picked up by another receiver. So what if the brain is a receiver of consciousness as well as a transmitter? Now, to me, this seems very resonantly true, you know, and it seems like this is what, what science is coming to. We do know that parts of the brain that are damaged can be, uh, it's like the brain can reroute. It's almost like the internet itself, you know, is designed to reroute um, information going around it. And different parts of the brain can serve the functions of other parts of the brain if they are damaged, um, which is interesting. It almost suggests that it's a holographic type of uh, mechanism. But in general, um, consciousness is, 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 I believe, you know, it's a, the brain is a receiver of consciousness itself. So um, that brings up this idea. If consciousness is received, you know, where is it received from? What is the transmitter of consciousness and how? It, what is the delivery mechanism? Because the thing with most, what our understandings of uh, when it comes to energy... Um, electromagnetic energy is broadcast or transmitted in a certain way, but it, it peters out after a while. Like it has, there's a, a, a doctor called Larry Dossie, and he has a book called The Power of Premonitions. And he reminds us that, you know, um, electromagnetic signals weaken according to the, to distance, and they can be blocked. Electromagnetic signals can be blocked. Now, consciousness doesn't have that. We wouldn't want to like fall out of, you know, consciousness Wi-Fi range and realize we just fall over because we've, We've gone out of bandwidth. We've, we've fallen out of the connection. You know, it, it, consciousness doesn't work like that. So it doesn't appear to be on the EM, EMF frequencies. You know, um, it appears to be a non-local phenomenon. And non-local phenomenon is actually a euphemism to say that it is. Uh, it's everywhere. If it's not local, it's everywhere. It's 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 embedded in the very fabric of reality. And this. One thing follows on from the other. It has to be that. If it's, if it's not local, it has to be non-local. And it's just it's um, embedded within the, fa the fabric of the universe itself. It's omnipresent. It's everywhere at once. So we start to get into a bit of quantum sort of area now. And I must say, you know, that, that there's nothing worse than an art-based, intuitive, in, you know, trying to grasp some of the, these more scientific terminologies. But I, I do encourage us. We need to integrate uh, some of these raw scientific ideas and approach them with different areas of the brain like the intuition, like the imagination and see how they fit as puzzle pieces. Um, you know, Einstein posited in his theory of general relativity that space and time are not separate but are parts of the same space-time continuum um, where very rapidly all, all the quantum um, scientists are developing theories and they work for a certain... They, they build up, you know, ideological platforms and scaffolding and go out on a very, very long limb and then they discover that they don't quite work and they come back to another central point. Um, another uh, phys uh, quantum physicist I've drawn some information from is David Bohm. And he has this idea that there is an implicate and an explicate, that basically everything that is manifested in the material world comes from an implicate source, that on these uh, higher vibrational dimensions, as you go in further, there is, like mystics and like uh, different... Uh, religious you know beliefs have there is a source there is something which everything comes from and he said that the the universe may be nothing more than a giant hologram created by the mind and that consciousness itself you know it might be some subtle form of matter intrinsically embedded in all things uh, from this implicate level 
So yet again, this changes the whole Western dynamic of what consciousness is and what happens when we alter consciousness with these uh, neurochemical browsers like psychedelics and entheogens. Um, now, there's a, a, a developing uh, uh, field of endeavor called quantum biology, which is trying to apply how things on the quantum level actually anchor itself in the, uh, the physical level and how that works on a biological level. Um, and it, I find this very interesting because there was a 2007 paper in Nature magazine, which is one of the core scientific magazines, which uh, saw evidence for, quote, uh, wave-like energy transfer through quantum coherence in photosynthetic systems. Now, photosynthetic systems means plants, means the vegetal life forms, and they're saying that they can see that there could be the potential for quantum um, processes going on in the plant kingdom, which brings up this idea, again, of the mind at large and not being anchored to the body because it's not just that the humans or the animals or the mammals or certain species have the potential for consciousness because of their brain structure. It's that all living things engage with this you know, quantum uh, biological process and uh, then draw from implicate source and uh, download, basically, consciousness itself. Um, there was a, a famous uh, test in the, in the late 60s by Cle Cleve Be Baxter, who again, worked was an ex-interrogation specialist for the CIA, there again with the, the uh, good old MKUltra days, and he did a, a, a test which has been you know, discredited since, but he, th there haven't been many. Interesting enough, science doesn't like to experiment with, uh, plant, with all the, the, um, the, uh, the different tools that it has at its, its disposal now. They're still not really uh, interested in plants because they have this ideological divide and this ideological predisposition to not believe in it. But Clive Bexter did these... Um, these tests with plants and testing their galvanic skin response and basically, you know, he'd play music to them and they would show the, the feedback from his... Uh, basically, it was, it was like the lie detector. It was hooking up a lie detector to plants and he would get positive responses back when he treated, gave good energy out and when he would harm a plant, he would get negative back. But it was interesting because uh, these experiments, uh, you know, if we're going to integrate what the true spectrum of consciousness is, I believe it's across... All the species, you know, it's it's not just not just the the, the ones we think with the, the brain structures. It's in the plant kingdom as well. Um, so this interspecies communication of uh, you know relating to plants as sentient species is very very pronounced when you enter the shamanic paradigm. And so we've gone through this wave of of psychedelia in the 50s and 60s. And I have this little riff that I say in my book. You know, in the it's almost like you get the the politicians you deserve every generation. You get the the entheogens or the medicine you deserve every generation. So we had the psychedelic renaissance and explosion because we had that, that you know, generation, multiple generation build-up of psychic energy wanting to express itself, and it came through the psychedelic prism and through that lens, and uh, and we've had that, and that sort of you know acid opened the mind. A generation later, ecstasy opened the heart, and a generation later, the plant kingdom with Madre Ayahuasca as the one of the lead avatars is helping to open up the soul, and it's like. It's like a gradation is happening where we weren't ready to go back to the jungle, to go to the jungles of South America in 1950. You know, William Burroughs went there in 1950 and had some infamous uh, ayahuasca experiences he wrote up in the Yahe letters where he said he saw the, you know, giant wet cosmic vagina that he ran screaming from, you know, and uh, it was too much because it was... It was too alien. It was like we had distanced ourselves from the garden and from the connection with nature. So nature had to come to us through the lab and through LSD, which was one molecule different from our, let's say, the morning glory seeds, the liliquai of the Mesoamerican people, and perhaps the same uh, 
soma that was used in the, the rites of Eleusis for 2,000 years all through um, you know, the, the, those mystery cults. Um, but it had, there was, it had to come through the lab. And then we had, now we're ready for the garden. So science has also caught up. We have much more of um, availability of technology to finesse on a very uh, uh, micro, astute sort of level what consciousness is. And we currently know that the human brain has five different frequencies. There's beta, alpha, theta, delta, and gamma, measured in cycles per second or hertz, each of which have their own characteristics and produce specific brain functionality. Um, for instance, uh, let me look here. So beta is 14 to 40 hertz. That's waking consciousness, reason, and logic. Alpha is 7.5 to 14 hertz a state of deep relaxation, light meditation, and intuition. Theta is 4 to 7.5 hertz, and that's when you're in deep REM sleep, uh, when you're in deep dream or deep meditation, or in those deep spiritual and psychoactive states of unity and oneness, which would be very close to uh, getting close to cosmic consciousness. Uh, delta is point, 0.5 to 4 hertz, the slowest brain frequency manifesting in a deep dreamless sleep or egoless meditation. And then there's gamma, which is above 40 hertz, the fastest frequency thought to produce insight, flow, and rapid information processing. And interestingly enough, gamma was only discovered recently with the advent of EEG machines that read the brain, which to me proves that there probably are, you know, more levels of consciousness. We just don't have the technology to, to read them yet. Um, so interestingly enough, you know, plants also resonate at, uh, at some of those deeper, uh, more more uh, dreamlike states and they they resonate and have feedback sort of that uh, is very positive at those states so it's like they seem to be um, plant consciousness seems to respond and have its growth improved at the 0 to 15 hertz frequency range delta through alpha so it gets interesting um, so again you know to bring this back to the Amazonian tradition They've always believed in plant sentience. There's many different uh, indigenous shamans or curanderos, as they call themselves. Uh, there's many different specialities. There's the vegetalistas, which work with a, a plethora of plants. The tobaccoeros, the ayahuascaeros, that specialize in ayahuasca. And all of them understand that there's a plant sentience and there's spirits in the plant. And when they say spirit, it means something different than what we mean spirit. You know, it, it definitely means this autonomous, intelligent life form. There's good and bad in the spiritual kingdom. The, the vegetal world opens up this whole cosmology, this whole sort of paradigm of uh, vegetal intelligence, which goes deeper and deeper into the great green matrix. Um, there's this whole idea of validated reality, the baseline world we live in. There's virtual reality, which we're creating through our technology. And there's vegetal reality, which is the original technology. It has the original networks, you know, of the web of life that we are modeling and biomimicking at the moment. So the shamans work with, uh, you know, the medicinal plants, like things like ayahuasca, and they work for, on behalf of healing for their patients, uh, and they connect to this plant world, and they connect and they sing these vibrational codes. So they say that madre ayahuasca, while being a purgative and working on a physical level, personally, you know, it, it, I find it, it feels like it... Um, Again, we're talking about the default mode network. You can, on ayahuasca, I feel basically my subconscious permeating into my conscious mind and ideating, and, and my heart. It's, there's a heart-mind connection, which I will you know, go through whatever issues or problems or my loved ones or the history of the universe, and I will ideate, and I'll emotionally ideate and connect to it. And um, 
it's that's where the healing comes from 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 freeing up those modes of the brain which have locked you down into an egoic structure and the shamans provide their healing you know the shaman provides healing ayahuasca provides healing and you are your own medicine as well because they believe that there's an energy body and over time you know uh, we all have imprints and hurts and wounds and we have stored those in our, in our emotional body and our energetic body and that's how illness manifests. The, the skin or the, the physicality is the last resort. When you get sick, that's because there's been a subtle disturbance at one of the more finer frequencies of being. Um, and so they work to the, the shamans in ceremony and they might use ayahuasca, madre ayahuasca, as a vibrational tool, as a diagnostic to go... All right, I have a patient who has cancer or AIDS or uh, you know something they're working on as a specific healing issue, um, and they find a plant. And in Western science, we understand that the the neurochemistry in a plant or in the physicality of things is how we do with medicines. In the shamanic paradigm, they understand that the vibrational uh, template for everything is the true medicine and the true magic and almost like the doctrine of signatures in the west you can understand the essence of something like the walnut might be good for the brain function because it looks like a walnut you know and they they understand that they they can they can ask on the astral on that vibrational realm where it's all connected and there's no separation they can ask different consciousnesses different spirits for help to help heal their patients and the the consciousness it might be the it might be the spirit of another plant it might be um, Remo Cuspi, a tree, something like that. It will sing its vibrational code in what they call an Icaro, an Icaro. And it's a, it's a, it's a vibrational um, imprint. It's its essence as vibration, which is transmitted through the, the help of ayahuasca to the curandero to sing into the patient. So it's, it's affecting at a distance, you know, reality at a distance, because everything is made up of vibration. And so, again, this is, um, this is uh, their deep science of curandarismo, which they've been uh, perfecting for tens of thousands of years, if not more. And every indigenous culture, right, has had these relationships with the plants. And, again, it's not the physical plants, it's the spirits in the plants. You know, Mar- Maria Sabina is a, a famous Mexican shamaness from the 1950s. She basically is the mother of us all here at uh, Palenque Nort, for all the listeners who are listening to this podcast, for uh, you know, modern Western uh, psychedelic entheogenic culture, uh, Maria Sabina um, was the Virgin Mary. She was the mother who introduced Gordon Wasson, who was the now proven CIA connected. Uh, um, he worked for Wall Street, was a you know famous banker. He was the president. Uh, the he was in charge of propaganda. That was his official term uh, at J.P. Morgan, one of the big banks on Wall Street. But he was a mycologist and he was interested in, in magic mushrooms and he was searching for this almost mythical magic mushroom because his wife was Russian and the Russians have remembrance of uh, uh, different properties of mushrooms. Um, and, you know, Mesoamerica, there's been the, uh, the psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, the liliquai I mentioned before, the morning glory seeds, uh, salvia divinorum, which was actually um, in the same areas that Gordon Wasson was um, looking for the mushroom in. But that was the really secret knowledge, which they didn't let, let him in on. So it took till the 90s for Salvia Divinorum to be popularized in the West. But all of these um, are sacred plants. And they, the indigenous people have relationships that they develop with them because they understand it's the interconnected web of being that is Gaia, is the matrix of the planet. And these plants are sort of avatars. They're sort of like in computer terminology, they're sub-programs of the larger, you know, um, the larger... You know, a framework of, of the planet itself, and it's by developing relationships with them that we can 
heal ourselves and find right relationship with the planet. And the whole idea of dis-ease, it's in the language. You're not at ease. You've fallen out of the right groove. You know, when you eat well, when you think well, when you love well, everything's great. You know, because, and you are probably, as an electromagnetic organism, receiving and broadcasting better frequency signal because everything's in right relationship. So the modern world is too caught up in this denser energetic state. You know, um, we've got, uh, the first time I went down to, to, uh, to the Amazon, the shamans were amazed. You know, we've got the, the ringtones and computers, and we've always got a screen now mediating our, uh, our relationship with the world. And it creates a certain relationship with consciousness. You get a little burst of dopamine every time you check, check your Facebook feed. I'm addicted, right? I'm totally addicted. But it's like it, it starts to develop the muscle of those pathways of the brain at the expense of the other pathways, of the imagination and the intuition and the heart-based spaces. So it's really about you know letting go of just the, the, what we think of as the mind, as the intellect, and uh, remembering um, to let go of all those type of screens and all those filters that are mediating again the mind at large and what deeper reservoir of consciousness is out there. So um, the first time I went down to Peru in 2007 documented in the book Ira Awakenings, I was very blessed to bump into Dennis McKenna, who is the brother of Terence McKenna. And uh, he did a lot of work with Hawaska Project in the early 1990s, which was the first medical study uh, looking at long-term users of ayahuasca and what it does to the brain. In essence, they found in a controlled studies that ayahuasca works on the synaptic pathways of the brain, almost like a computer program when you do the cleanup program and it defrags. And it re-puts it, re-links all those pathways back back up that have got a bit frayed and, and decayed, and um, you know it, it it replenishes and it heals those pathways. So that's why you, you often feel very uh, great after ayahuasca. The ayahuasca afterglow, neurochemically in your brain structure, you've been re-energized and re-re-linked up. But I was talking to to Dennis as well, and we we're, were thinking about this idea again of consciousness and what ayahuasca is opening up. And he said to me. If the brain is a receiver of consciousness, then perhaps consciousness uh, itself is a singularity point, much like black holes, where energy is compacted so densely in on itself that it collapses. And that collapse in the brain may be what causes consciousness. Now, it's true. It's, it's a mini singularity. It's like on some, uh, some level, you know, and they, they're, they're trying to fit the quantum model to to the brain, to the the mind-brain relationship at the moment. There's a few different um, there's a few different ideas of how that could work, and um, I'll get to that in a minute. So I'm really interested in this idea of black holes as well because um, you know they're quite recent in astrophysics and in our perception of what science is telling us of how what we were embedded in the universe. Has anyone ever seen those pictures of galaxies you know on the internet? And they look if you've ever seen like a picture of the synaptic brain structure of your, your brain, they, 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 they look like neuronal networks. They look like all the, the stars are like a nodal points again in these sort of um, you know, macro-galactic synaptic pathways. And it seems like on some level, like the ancient alchemists used to say, as above, so below, it seems that nature uh, replicates the same, not just themes, but she, she builds herself on the micro and the macro scales. So... When Dennis was talking to me about black holes and this idea of singularity and perhaps consciousness itself is a singularity, and one of the, the, the thoughts is that they, you know, black holes, they have found now at the center of most, most of the galaxies they're looking at, they're finding black holes at the center. And they think this is the, you know, the core mechanism that helps 
you know, galaxies evolve and is the central nodal point within which it's it's um, it's evolving out of. But also, they suspect that there could be at the, at the heart of an atom, you know, at the heart of the smallest, at the, the biggest scale with black holes and at the galactic level, and at the smallest scale, at the atomic level inside, when you go to that quantum level, that's the thing, there could be a, 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 a singularity a process happening like a black hole as well. So, um, again, that's the, as, as above, so below, like ancient wisdom said. So, interestingly enough, there is this other very famous culture, the Maya of uh, um, the, the Mayan culture of you know, Central America, South America, all down to even up to North America. There's a lot of drift in uh, the different cultures, not just the Maya, but the um, the different uh, Amerindian cultures, which uh, b- both had connections to entheogenic plants and had perceptions of uh, what was happening with consciousness and what was happening with our relationship to. Um, the cosmos and how that related on Earth. Now, the Maya um, believed that consciousness was to be found at the center of our galaxy, right? Which is which is very interesting. But they would even think of there being a galaxy, whatever in their language. In their language, they believed at the center of the galaxy was a being they called Hunab Ku, and it translates to the womb of the Great Mother. You know, again, a feminine, birthing, all-giving. Uh, entity that lied at the heart of what they considered because they, they were stargazers. They took entheogens, they had um, maybe ayahuasca, they definitely had the San Pedro cactus, the mescaline cactus. Um, DMT snuffs were all throughout sort of Mesoamerica as well, uh, and DMT as you know, different modalities that cultures would use. Um, but because of that and because of their, their vegetal, organic relationship with the planet, they also developed this, uh, I guess, more feminine, organic understanding of reality and of consciousness. And they were stargazers, and they could map to an amazingly precise, to this day, micro-nano-level almost scale of time to, you know, eons of time by using calendricals, which they devised. I mean, you know, these are the original uh, trippers, scientific trippers, what what they could do with their their elevated consciousness. Um, So, interestingly enough... um, Hunabku, the womb of the Great Mother, is not just a resonant idea. In 2002, NASA confirmed that at the heart of our galaxy is a black hole. This is only in 2002, right? And so this is exactly what the Mayans said, you know, hundreds of years ago, that there was an entity or there's something at the center of the galaxy which was called the womb of the Great Mother. And here's the thing. I'll give you a bit of background about black holes. So um, because we've had a lot of uh, the Hubble telescope and we've had a lot of... um, excuse me, new technology looking outwards, looking up into the galaxy to, to look at stars. We've, <coughs> we've been getting a lot more understanding. There was the, uh, the, Swift, the Swift Gamma Ray Burst Mission in 2004, the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope in 2008. Both of them helped deepen our understanding of black holes. And NASA has confirmed, yeah, there is this supermassive black hole, uh, which, according to the current theories, black holes don't just suck in all matter and light and energy and... It's like going down the plug hole and that's it, nothing more. Everyone used to think that that was the end, you know. Everything is absorbed by a black hole. Nothing comes out of a black hole. Now, the current, the current cutting-edge astrophysics has confirmed that's not true. So, here's what happens. Black holes also spit out jets of ionized gas into space, huge, huge flaming jets of plasma that reach galaxies wide, right? 
these jets are bits of matter that are accelerated by the event horizon they enter and are rebounded so fast they give off gamma rays that convert energy to light. So plasma, which is you know one of these primal underlying forces of energy in, in the galactic structure, is produced, is secreted by the black hole at the centre of our galaxy. Like a mother, she is giving birth with these plasmic, you know, ejaculations, we could say. And here's the interesting thing. These uh, jets of plasma, they think, help heat up space, change the cosmic environment, and may be directly responsible for sparking stars into existence. It's the mother. Stars, you know, it's like when a forest fire goes through um, and it, it burns everything down, but certain seeds germinate from the intense heat. Nature has cycles at work, as above, so below, yet again, which mimic and replicate, and we can learn a lot from looking down here and applying that to up there. So here's what I wonder. NASA confirms there's a black hole at the centre of the galaxy. The Mayans thought there was. The Mayans also thought the centre of the galaxy was the seat of consciousness. If our brains are receivers of consciousness on some quantum biological way, with the singularity at the heart of consciousness here, with the black hole as the projector of consciousness there... Um, what if the minds were right? What if the seat of consciousness in our galaxy is the center of the black hole? And what if it's something like, in co- you know, the analogy I used earlier was a radio receive, radio set or a TV set. But what if uh, the center of the galaxy is something like a pan-galactic cloud computer? What if there's this distributed consciousness and it's all, you know, amassing there from... You know, they, they don't really know what's at the other side of the black hole. They think it could be a singularity, it could be a wormhole, it could lead to another dimension, an alternate dimension. Um, it could lead to what David Baum considered to be the implicate, to these deeper levels of source consciousness, to energy. Because consciousness is energy. When we're saying consciousness or, or energy or every culture with its language like Godhead or whatever, they're all just labels for some type of consciousness. But you've got to remember that on some of the more mystic understandings, Consciousness is alive when it's broadcast as a signal from the source. Imagine, imagine this nodal network going on from us and our brains to pangalactic, you know, cloud computer at the center of the galaxy to the implicate level. It's a, it's a network that is the delivery mechanism for consciousness. So, um, what if our current mapping of the structural similarities of the big massive to the art cars that go by? Um, yeah, what, what, what if basically what we're seeing is this delivery mechanism of consciousness coming from an implicate source through the, the galactic portal? And what if this happens all throughout the universe? What if the, the way that consciousness is radiated from source is through this, what appears to be on a galactic level, like synaptic pathways? Um, so you've got a galactic neuronal pathways that activate the life forms. So we do know that galactic emissions affect magnetic fields, they affect energy on Earth, and that there's this cascading effect that everything affects everything else, basically, right? And so the Earth has a magnetic field in relationship with the Sun's magnetic field. The Sun is in relationship with deep galactic energies because it's all connected, because it's all alive, because they're all living organisms, you know? And just as indigenous people who understand not just energy and consciousness um, and they have appreciation of the planet, as a alive organism. They also, you know, most indigenous cultures that I've heard on, whether it's like the Dogon believe they come from Sirius, 
the Mayans may come some from they all believe they come from different star systems. But interestingly enough, at least five or six of the indigenous cultures I've heard some of the more esoteric knowledge of believe they come from different star systems. And they're not saying they come down in um, you know, mechanical devices from you know, outer space, but think of it, it transmits you know, consciousness transmits from galactic center and the center is everywhere. You know, because where is the center of the universe? Where is the edge of the universe? It's expanding on the material level. But, um, you know, the center is within. It's this, this idea of implicate source. So I wonder, you know, as it cascades through and it, uh, it manifests, consciousness is received by, well, you know, before, the, before there were brains, how did consciousness build a brain? You know, how did we get this mechanism to receive consciousness unless it doesn't even need, you know, there's a, there's a deeper template of being within which consciousness can, uh, can form what it needs, uh, you know, in the physical level. So we do know that, uh, you know, since the much ballyhooed 2012 phenomenon, um, here's a really interesting thing, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily the end of the world as we knew it, but it was the end of one world age and the beginning of another. And that's what the true... Uh, essence of the Mayan calendar and of most indigenous cultures who have psychoactive plants who appreciate the earth as a living organism understood that there is this idea of cyclic time. There is this idea that we go through certain world ages of time and, um, you know, one finishes and it's not the end of the world but another one begins. The reason that a lot of the doom and gloom and the apocalypse got put into the Hollywood meme about 2012 because many indigenous cultures have left us, left, left us these maps of cyclic time and they say, hey, um, in the cycles there is death and rebirth. And what happens periodically is that everything gets raised on the earth. Remember I'm saying the, the, um, the forest fire goes through and more things germinate and the, uh, the black holes emit these plasma-wide jets, galaxies-wide plasma-wide jets. Destruction and, and birth are two sides of the same coin. It's like I was saying at the start, like Western culture um, denuded and repressed consciousness and spirituality for so long that it erupted in the 20th century in the psychedelic movement because it couldn't be suppressed. It had an equal and opposite effect. So we do know that in 2012 we have crossed the galactic elliptic. Our orbit um, you know, in our solar system and the solar system in the galaxy has tipped over the middle point of the galaxy and we are now being bombarded. Bombarded is the only word for it. I mean, I, I've, I've, as a experiential journalist i've interviewed not just psychedelic people but astrophysicists and really seek out as much astrophysics as you can because it is it is deeply psychedelic and um the thing is uh over the 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 cusp of the elliptic we're now being bombarded by all these uh galactic energies which we were hidden from it's like we've gone from a a back lane little road to you know 10 lane la superhighway and we're we're now getting these magnetars which have 100,000 uh, times more power than the sun every second, just radiating through the galactic channels down into the sun. There's all these protective mechanisms in the sun, in the magnetic field, in the way that our Earth itself's biosphere is engendered to block out deep UV rays and deep radiation from space. Cosmic rays, which are coming in, are on the increase. They, they, science debates you know, whether it's increasing more or it goes through a fluctuation of, of booming and busting. Here's the thing I found out as well. Cosmic rays interact with the upper atmosphere and produce the heavier elements in the periodic table. It's like they wouldn't exist without cosmic rays coming in. They've confirmed now that cosmic rays control or are directly related to the cloud cover and to the weather we have on the Earth. Um, And so we're seeing all this wild weather. I won't go into the whole global warming thing except to say you Google global warming solar system NASA and you'll find a report from NASA in about 2007 
Jupiter, Neptune, all the planets in our solar system are warming. You know, it's like, yes, we have man-made uh, emissions which are causing warming, but we're also having deep galactic emissions which are coming in and are affecting uh, the planetary consciousness, whether that's with the planet itself is going through its changes as an organism and a life form, and so are we as it trickles down to us. So um, one of the things which are really important to our consciousness is magnetic fields. Uh, in 2008, New Scientist magazine interviewed Kelly Posner, a psychiatrist at Columbia University, who said... The most plausible explanation for the association between geomagnetic activity and depression and suicide is that geomagnetic storms desynchronize circadian rhythms and melatonin production. Now, the, the pineal gland, which uh, regulates circadian rhythms and also melatonin production, is very, very sensitive to magnetic fields. And uh, here's the thing, that those same pathways, melatonin is what fills the serotonin pathways in the daytime, and that's why melatonin helps you adjust um, when you've got jet lag or you're you know, changing time zones. Um, in the nighttime, DMT travels down those pathways. If you do nine days of darkness, it's called the darkness retreat or sort of ordeal. Some indigenous cultures don't use plants to do this. Um, our brains endogenously secrete DMT and if you are nine days and nights in total darkness you will start to trip balls you will completely endogenously secrete your build up of DMT because it hasn't been burnt out by the light and turned into and made way for the melatonin so nature has built in these systems these default mechanisms um, and so you know we have uh, interestingly enough you know it's still yet to be fully 100% confirmed that we have DMT production in the pineal glands, although they have, uh, in the last six months or so, uh, confirmed that DNA is, is produced, sorry, DMT is produced in the pineal gland in rats, which are obviously, you know, they do these studies on rats because they have a lot of uh, deep genetic similarities and structural similarities to, to us um, in experiments. Um, but the pineal gland all throughout, throughout history has been thought to be the, this third eye and this thing that it's directly in the centre of your head where it's hidden away from the light, so it doesn't receive uh, direct sunlight, so it would seem to resonantly um, be involved in the production of DMT, which is sensitive to light as well. So I'm coming up to some really interesting stuff, and I'm, I'm coming up to the end of my talk here. But um, DMT is produced by, your, by your, your brain. We won't say the pineal gland, but by your brain. It's in the blood. It's in the you know, bone marrow. It's produced by us. DMT is in the plant kingdom, obviously, the resurgence in popularity of ayahuasca that is the key visionary component in ayahuasca ayahuasca has an mao component which is from the ayahuasca vine the benisteriopsis carpi and ad admixture plants are added uh like chacruna or chaliponga um, which contain dmt but it's a it's a mechanism to use because we have fallen out of right relationship with our own ability to do this you know nature has built in the dmt into our brains into the insects brains into the plant the mammals, it's, it's threaded throughout through most, it, through much of nature's kingdom has this almost neurotransmitter that, you know, of DMT to connect us together. It's like it's the, the sentient, um, you know, browser which connects us together. So um, there seems to be this uh, celestial daisy chain which comes from uh, deep core galactic, uh, you know, central. Um, the Mayans also realized that their end of their calendar was, um, they called it, uh, 0 0.0 .0 0 0.0.0.0 anchoring straight up to galactic center. So what this made me realize is, you know, indigenous cultures are talking about cyclic time. And this is what the Mayans are saying, that the, where we were linking up and 2012 was just, you know, a tick of a clock in a 26,000-year 
um, timekeeping clock. And it's not an idea of time because their understanding of time was cyclic. And it's this idea of synchronous time. And this idea that things, you know, go in, in waves and there's this, uh, anyway, this synchronous time. Um, but at 0.0.0, you're lined up to galactic center. And what I understood that, I had this intuition that it's like when you have mobile reception and you get four bar signal. So, you know, we have spent the last tens of thousands of years on like one bar signal. You go back to the dark ages, you go back to the start of history, the war, all the thing, and we blame ourselves because of ego, and it's like we've fallen out of the mind at large, having the ability to receive core consciousness and cosmic consciousness, but what I'm really grokking now is we're not in control, we're not necessarily to blame for the fact we didn't have consciousness, and we've done the best we, ha- we could as a species with what we had, but we are coming... Um, into this time of what I call four-bar galactic godhead consciousness, where we are linked up to the center of the galaxy where consciousness is you know, um, uh, projecting from and connecting to the distributed consciousness in all things which have the structure to receive it. So four-bar galactic consciousness. I feel it's almost like to update the analogy of the radio receiver and of the television set to a more 21st century sort of a riff of like a bit torrent, Right? And so imagine if consciousness is a bit torrent being projected from four-bar galactic godhead consciousness in the center of the black hole. And when it is received by the structures which it itself has built to, to you know, receive consciousness, the brain structures or even with the plants, um, whatever template they've got to receive consciousness, it, nature builds life to receive the message of itself to breed more of itself. Like it's a self-fulfilling program. Here's the interesting thing, though, to tie this into the, the topic of my talk, you know, psychedelics, entheogens, and the species activation. We're saying before, all the species seem to be sentient or sapient to a certain level, including the plants. And in the shamanistic worldview, they, they consider the earth and the rocks. They say that there are these apus, there are these, uh, you know, consciousnesses in the rocks, and they're the, they're the first layer of consciousness, the oldest layer. You know, and when uh, when they came down from the stars, that's what they say. The star beings came down, and they settled and, and made form, and they formed the lands, and they're resting there, and they're your bedrock, they're your bedrock foundation. So, what if all the species themselves are receiving a different frequency of the bit torrent of pangalactic consciousness? And then, what if the cradle of life itself is like? You know, all the species are like a uh, satellite dish to receive consciousness and then reformulate the code, the program, and then build it on this planet. And so we're seeing this multiplicity of life forms manifest and evolve and continue the code going, but they're receiving the consciousness of the code from implicate source through the pangalactic neuronal networks. And the, the satellite dish of all the different species together synergistically are forming a gestalt and, and they're reforming the program and the app is loading, right? That's, that's just something to think about. So this is like an organic, organic mesh network, a terrestrial DNA receiver from galactic signal, a species satellite dish, a pan-galactic big torrent from galactic center. Um, and so what I believe has been happening with uh, things like psychedelics and entheogens, indigenous cultures have kept the entheogens, and now we're seeing in the, uh, the first you know, uh, few decades of the 21st century, we're seeing this entheogenic explosion. We're seeing, you know, ayahuasca predominantly helping heal people. There's a built-in fail-safe with ayahuasca. She's been around forever, right? But we didn't necessarily need her on mass back in the 50s. The psychedelic explosion layered the vibe. 
we it broke down the white picket fence America to get ready for the uh, sort of you know even the e- e- ecstasy in the 80s to break down open the heart tracker and now in the noughts again to go back to the garden to be ready for vegetal intelligence to have this layering over time turning off the default mode network of the species you know all of these things are browsers which act on different facets of our consciousness and over larger periods of time as a species i feel we're being groomed i feel we're being groomed for a return to something like cosmic consciousness or what where i'm from in australia indigenous australians the aboriginals say is dream time consciousness where it's that state where you can almost multitask because humanity has anchored and held these states of altered states of dream time consciousness before but we fell out we fell out into history we had the fall the fall of consciousness which is in all these myth maps right and i'm saying this happens regularly over larger galactic cycles of time and indigenous cultures god bless all our ancestors have left us these maps of consciousness and some of these indigenous tribes and people have been the caretakers for the plants which now it is time to get on the train on the bike but they're like training wheels because the plants are helping especially ayahuasca are helping cleanse us and bring us back to you know this holonic integration where like snowflakes you know the, that work that dr emoto does with water crystals and you can project um thoughts and feelings like uh you know at the water and it's like we are being groomed and cleansed and made uh we're polished our you know like indra's net with all the jewels we're being polished to reveal within ourselves that we are consciousness and consciousness is more than just what we've thought it is this manifestation of the divine this is manifestation of source consciousness from the uh the wave into the particle into what appears to be a separate of consciousness but that that age is is passing and so it's not about relying on a psychedelic or an entheogen like ayahuasca but it's about embracing what encounter you encounter on your path for your best uh polishing and cleansing and revealing the divine within because then if we can hold the signal that discovered that you know we're 70% water or electromagnetic beings and you know we we um dna emits biophotons and it's communicating with light they've done these tests with the cosmic ray um cosmic rays are always coming in but they've done deep, deep core ice core samples and they've seen which um they can tell which eras and what times the cosmic rays have been coming in and it seems to pretty accurately map the surges and evolution because you know i believe that the uh the dna is receiving signal and that's when we evolve they know that dna only evolves when the environment changes and so what we're seeing on the planet at the moment is you know there's they're calling it the fourth great terrestrial extinction we've gone through they they can tell from everything that's gone before and um you know it's all just biomass it's all just a physical form that divine intelligence has incarnated to to serve the function uh what is needed in the environment at that time so i believe that the psychedelics and the entheogens and what they're revealing within us is this divinity and this higher level of consciousness which the default mode networks which is off for the mind at large to receive more of the signal and when we do this as groups and while we're seeing this momentum in psychedelic culture and entheogenic culture this this uh you know i call it the global shamanic resurgence we're forming a circuit of people that can hold more signal and when we do that it's like a species swarm 
It's like, it's like you know, Baraka footage on Fast Forward when what's coming in and what we're coming up to is perfectly synchronizing with what we have within us to hold and to reveal. And so with that, I will leave you with a quote from William Blake. We might soon be able to see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower to hold infinity in the palm of our hands and eternity in an hour. I am Rak Razam, and I thank you. Many blessings. Aloha. So if you are looking, aya-awakenings.com, I have a book on uh, my journey down to South America and all of this, but in a very beautiful poetic, lyrical way, mapping the shamanic resurgence. There's a film screening here in Palenque Nort at midnight. Tonight, Ira Awakenings, which is probably the most closest you can get to a DMT ayahuasca experience without taking it in celluloid film, anchoring that experience. And uh, I'm starting a new leg of my journey two weeks after Burning Man, going down to Peru and deepening my own uh, relationship with the medicine and leading retreats with Percy Garcia. Uh, and so I will be doing that on a regular basis. And I uh, hope to see you all again. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Wow, that was a real tour de force, as uh, they say in some foreign lands. As we were listening to Rack's talk just now, I realized that for anyone who is new here in the salon, they may not realize how many concepts he's integrated into this talk. Several of the things that he mentioned in a sentence or two have been the focus of entire podcasts, and uh, I think Rack has done a considerable amount of integrative thinking here, which makes his work feel so refreshingly new. And before I forget it, uh, near the end of his talk, Rack mentioned that DMT was sensitive to light. Well, here's something that isn't widely known about DMT, and that is the fact that if you get a large enough crystal of it, let's say a brownie pan full, then if you take a screwdriver to chip it out, you're going to discover that it's picoelectric. Or so I'm told. (laughs) I don't know why, but I have this strange hunch that one day that little fact is going to be important. (laughs) Actually, I just realized I'm starting to sound a little dotty here. The picoelectric part is a fact, but that the fact may be important one day is just my opinion, and we should never forget that although we are entitled to our own opinions, we are not entitled to our own facts. I think a lot of us forget that sometimes. Now as a companion piece to the talk by Rack Razam that we just listened to, you may want to surf over to YouTube and listen to a brief presentation that Bernardo Kastrup gave at one of Deepak Chopra's conferences last year because it ties directly to what Rack was saying. And I'll link to that talk in the program notes, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.